It's Tuesday, April the 6th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be your moderator today. That also means I have the privilege of introducing two of my colleagues, Hoover Institution senior fellows, good fellows as we call them. That's good fellows, not good fellas, but they're wise guys nonetheless, academic wise guys, if you will. That would include my friend John Cochran. John's an economist on the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson senior fellow. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Second good fellow is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and he is the author of the best-selling book, Battlegrounds, A Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hey, Bill. Great to be with you and John and our special guest. Yes, we do have a special guest. Ordinarily, I'll be introducing our third good fellow, Neil Ferguson. Uh, Neil has time off this week. I won't say for good behavior. He's actually being a good dad. He'll be back on next week, uh, rest assured. In his place, though, you're in for something special, and that is our colleague from across the pond, Bjorn Lomborg. Bjorn uh, Lomborg is a Hoover Institution visiting fellow, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, and a visiting professor at the Copenhagen Business School. He's also a best-selling author whose 2020 book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Cost Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet, and Examines Why Climate Change is Real, but Not Necessarily the Coming of the Apocalypse. Bjorn, it's great to have you back on Goodfellows. It's great to be back. And you just summarized my book in what, one sentence? That's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's why I make the big bucks here. Uh, we're going to talk climate change, obviously, Bjorn, but why don't you quickly give us a, co uh, a COVID update? Have you been vaccinated or are things going well there? I'm, I'm actually in Sweden right now. And no, I haven't been vaccinated. It, it's going pretty slow. Uh, I just read that there's uh, good prospects in the future. But right now, we're I think we're at 16% uh, who has been um, inoculated here in Sweden. And Denmark is about the same. So not terribly good. Okay. Um, you were with us last summer. We uh, covered a lot of ground then on climate change. A lot's happened since then, Bjorn. Uh, we have a new president in America, in case you're not aware. Um, the left has I saw that. Left's discovered cancel culture and climate change as effective ways to promote their agenda. Uh, Bill Gates came out with a book not long ago, Bjorn, outlining how to reduce uh, gas house emissions to zero by 2050. Uh, we have an infrastructure being sold here, a package being sold here in America as a way to curb climate change. Uh, Joe Biden's hosting a virtual leader summit uh, later this month at the White House to talk climate change. And Greta Thunberg, what happened to Greta Bjorn? So there's a lot to get into today, but I want to start things a little differently by going to John Cochran, because John, not too long ago, testified before a Senate committee, the Senate Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committee. The title of that hearing was 21st Century Economy, Protecting, that protecting the Financial System from Risks Associated with Climate Change. John, what did you learn in your two and a half hour experience on Zoom with regards to Congress and climate change in the economy? That our federal government has gone completely nuts. Um, <laughs> let me let, I, let me try to be more um, scientific about that because I, I have a bunch of questions that I want to ask Bjorn, and, and this is the first one. Um, so, <clears throat> the, right now, let me just fill in the readers. Right now, there is a uh, an executive order saying climate change is is going to be part of everything the government does, and uh, the um, uh, our Financial Stability Oversight Council and Federal Reserve are, are jumping into the climate change bandwagon to try to get uh, banks especially to um, disclose and monitor climate risks. This is part, we are actually late to the game, an alphabet soup of international organizations 
the IMF, the OECD, the BIS, the uh, ECB, the Bank of England are far ahead of us on the curve of this idea, which really comes down to um, starve the fossil fuel industry of money and redirect money to today's fashionable uh, pet green projects. Uh, not much money is going to go to all the great ideas you will hear in Bjorn's books for um, actually doing something about uh, climate change. Let me uh, let me just read a uh, Janet Yellen, who I, I know well and respect, and has uh, been very sensible about many things. Nonetheless, is the Treasury Secretary and just issued a statement, which I want to read in part. To, I, this is going to come around to a question sooner or later, Bjorn. Uh, but uh, just to give an idea of what's going on, the uh, head of our Treasury, our Treasury Secretary, uh, said. Climate change is an existential threat to our environment. It poses a tremendous risk to our country's financial stability. Now, not just the environment, not just the GDP, but financial stability, meaning the banks could all fail somehow. We know that storms will hit us with more frequency and more intensity. We know warming temperatures might disrupt food and water supplies, leading to unrest around the world. Our financial system must be prepared for the market and credit risks of these climate-related events. Uh, it must be prepared for the best possible scenario that we begin a rapid transition to net zero carbon economy, which creates potential challenges for financial institutions and markets. Uh, and the Financial Stability Oversight Council has an important role to play coordinating regulators' collective efforts to improve the measurement and management of climate-related risks in the financial system. Now, uh, I gave this testimony and I, I wrote a uh, uh, essay uh, related to it where I opined, and, and this is where Bjorn can either say I'm right or I'm wrong, that, um, that this was a fantasy, that over the range that we can possibly think of financial risks, the climate risk simply does not exist. We know what's gonna happen to the climate in the next 10 years. We know the extremes of weather that could happen in the next 10 years. Second, that um, I didn't go here, but I wanna ask you the question, to what extent is there even any science on this idea that climate change means greater risks uh, to the weather, greater variability, as opposed to sort of trends, changes in the mean that we know pretty well. Finally, that climate, that weather just doesn't have that much effect on the GDP uh, of a modern economy, and even less so on the health of financial institutions which after all are supposed to be protected uh, by layers of equity and other things from losses. Uh, companies lose money all the time. Tesla could lose money. Uh, many green companies have lost money and nobody's asking them. But you know, as, as technologies change, uh, 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 Kodak went out when electric cameras went in. Well, there's no financial stability risk theory. So it struck me on all those grounds that this was a fantasy. So I'd like to ask, um, Finally, I'm getting around to a question, but I'll let you give a long answer too. Uh, on the science of variability, on the uh, danger of a, an unexpected shock that could really dangerously hit the, the economy in the foreseeable future of financial stability, on shocks to the financial system, does this make any sense? And if not, what is going on that this mantra is being repeated over and over again uh, in Washington and around the world in defense of technologies with nobody's doing any cost benefit analysis. Nobody's thinking, will this actually help the climate? What are the ways to help the climate? Ah, help us out. Yes. Thanks, John. So yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. And really it, it touches on a lot of the issues that I think we need to talk about when we, when we discuss global warming. So look, global warming is a real problem and it will have 
negative, mostly negative impacts. That's why it's a problem. That's why we should also think about how we how we fix it. But you're absolutely right that it's um that it's a smaller part. It's not sort of this existential threat. It's become very popular to say it's an existential threat, and you just quoted Yellen uh, to saying that as well. It's nothing of the sorts. So the UN Climate Panel tells us that in 50 years, the net impact of global warming will be somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of our income. So instead of us being 100% as rich as we would be in, 100, in 50 years, we'll only be maybe as bad as 98% as rich. Remember, by then, we'll be 362% as rich as we are today. That's one so year's growth. What, yes. So what they're basically saying is instead of 362, we might only be 356% as rich. Yes, that's a problem. No, it's not the end of the world. And, and it's very explicit when you know Yellen was just saying, you quote her again saying, there will be more violent storms. That's possibly true, but also that there'll be more storms, probably not. That's not actually what we're seeing. And in general, they're telling us this is an existential threat when indeed we know what really matters for violence of storms and anything else is development. If you're poor, a storm hits your corrugated roof and you're really bad off. If you're rich and you live in Florida, it doesn't matter all that much. Yes, you'd still rather be without it, but it's actually a very, very small fraction. So if you look globally, all storms and all extreme temperatures and all droughts and everything else that we can look at as possibly climate related cost us somewhere between 0.2 and 0.3% of global GDP. This is just not what is going to rock the boat. The main costs are not this. The main costs are the fact that we'll have much higher cooling costs, we'll have uh, lower uh, um, heating costs, we will have more costs from, for instance, needing to protect our uh, cities and our shores. But these are all very, very simple and very predictable costs and something that will come over the next 50 years. So yes, there is a problem, but this idea that you can somehow say, this is why we should revolutionize uh, finance institutions is simply the wrong response to a real problem. And it's a terribly exaggerated response in a way that actually leads to bad policy. You asked also, why is that happening? And I think this the simple answer is because you can. You know, that you're talking about this. When you talk about doing this in uh, democracies, so when, for instance, uh, you talk about it as a Joe Biden, all economists tell you one of the best simple ways to fix a significant part of the problem is a carbon tax. But nobody wants a carbon tax because it actually hurts the people who are going to vote for you next time. So you're trying to do it in all kinds of other fora. So in some sense, you could say the reason why Yellen is talking about this is because it's much easier to do in a place where she's not elected than in a place where you actually have to get it legislated. But that doesn't make it a good idea. Again, we need to get back and say, what are the kind of responses that we should be doing? Mm -hmm. Not just where can we actually be talking about this and feeling all virtuous about it, but not actually succeeding. I want to get back to policy, but first I want to ask the HR question, <laughs> unless HR will jump in and ask another question. Uh, so HR is our, our expert on international affairs in China. And of course this uh, bears on our uh, bears as well. So uh, I'll tee it up maybe in HR and then you can ask it too if you want. I, I, so I ran into a st statistic recently, which I'll get slightly wrong, that China uses more concrete every two years than the US used in the entire 20th century. 
Uh, concrete, of course, by itself emits a, a lot of carbon, but they are uh, going like crazy. <clears throat> um, uh, China is building a new coal-fired power plant uh, once a week. Is that correct? A new thousand megawatts coal-fired power plant? About 70 a year building yeah. or finance internationally. Yeah. Um, so, and if the U.S. is, uh, the U.S. seems to be headed not towards pure Nuremberg solutions, but to very expensive solutions. Nobody even does cost-benefit analysis anymore. There was an executive order saying you can't, you're not allowed to do cost-benefit analysis, or if you do, you have to put in equity, justice, and all sorts of other uh, completely unmeasurable benefits. Um, so the U.S. seems to be pursuing very high-cost, very ineffective things that will stymie our development. We are as HR will tell us in the strategic competition with China, who is happily building like crazy, um, this the international dimension of this does not seem like it will, uh, will last. HR, ask your own damn question. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. can I just, John? <laughs> or please, HR, go, just go before with you, that HR Before you answer, uh, because one of the things that Yellen was talking about was we need to have this regulation in order to not have a lot of uprisings and unrest and all kinds of things. But the reality, of course, is if you actually make climate policies that will end up costing 5, 10, or 15% for your GDP in order to fix a 2, 3, 4% problem in the long run, you're slated for a lot more problems. You will get the kind of uprisings that France saw in 2018 with the yellow vests. When people start not being able to afford to drive their car, when they start not to be able to heat their homes, that kind of thing, you get real up, uh, uh, uprisings. So again, I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that it's not just the climate cost, but it's also the climate policy cost. And there's a very good chance if you do it badly, as you were talking about, that you actually end up with higher cost, more unrest and more dissatisfaction. Oh, and, and more deeply, that, that, that unrest in the Middle East comes from the way to stop unrest in the Middle East and, and, the, and the Iranians and the civil wars there is for us to build high speed trains is about as silly as the way to make it rain in California is for us to build high-speed trains. Another idea that has been advanced. HR, I'm sorry, we keep circling around the HR question, not letting you talk. <laughs> I'm applying for college credit in, in economics after this one, you know, as, as a story here. So, hey, I, I think what we're talking about, Bjorn, hey, it's great to see you, first of all, and, and uh, hopefully we'll see you back in California here soon. But, you know, I, I think that we, we're hitting on the two key points, really, about the, about the, you know, the climate debate. The first is, hey, this is a problem, but we need real solutions. And the second is that there is no such thing as a U.S.-specific or developed economy-specific solution, right? The, the solutions that we come up with have to be applicable across developing economies. And, and I, you know, what, what really disturbs me about this debate, because it's actually, it's, sadly, it's representative of seemingly all the debates we have these days, is people go, if you'll pardon the expression, to polar extremes, right? You have either you have either a Green New Deal uh, range of non-solutions, or you have climate deniers. And I just want to make clear to our viewers, Bjorn, you're not a climate denier. What you're what you are is an advocate for real solutions, rational solutions to to, to the problem. So, what, what Bjorn, I'd like to ask you: Can, can we? I think we we, we can agree really on a number of aspects of this, right? First of all, climate change is happening. Second of all, I think we should agree, we have to be able to agree that it's man-made. We can also agree that it's bad, right? And that we should do something about it. 
But I, I think what we also have to agree are the points that I think we've made uh, so far, right, which is that we need, we need solutions that are economically viable and solutions to, that do not create second and third order effects that make the solution right, worse than, than the disease itself or the, the problem we're trying to solve. And those problems will be, as you mentioned, in maybe economic growth and development, but in energy security associated with that, but also water security, food security, and health security. So could you talk more about the trade-offs and, and then also maybe in a hopeful way, talk maybe about some of the economically feasible and viable solutions uh, that, that are already available if we just start talking more about them and less about you know, Green New Deal sort of non-solutions. Yeah, yeah, no, so HR, that's, that's a great question or a series of questions. Uh, so fundamentally, you're absolutely right in saying, look, this is not a solution or sorry, a problem that the US can fix or even the whole rich world. Remember, if the entire rich world stopped all of their CO2 emissions tomorrow, you would reduce global temperatures by the end of the century by 0.8 degree Fahrenheit. So yes, it would be a change, but not very big change because most of the emissions are gonna come from all the people who are still not rich and who want to be as rich as we are and as America uh, is. So this is really about making sure that we can find a solution that doesn't just work for the US or for other rich countries, but work for everyone. The second part, and that goes back to John's uh, question is to remember if this becomes very expensive, it's not that we're going to ruin ourselves. It's just that we're just going to say, oh, we're not going to do it. You know, or if the politicians in charge are not going to say that, they're going to get voted out. So if you try something that's phenomenally expensive, you're not going to actually succeed in fixing climate with a phenomenally expensive policy. That is especially true in the world's poor nations. So, you know, India is perhaps the most obvious one. Uh, India just came out and said, no, we think you know, a, a net zero target sounds nice. And of, of course, it's the kind of thing that people talk a lot about, but it's, it's pie in the sky. It's just not gonna happen because we actually have a couple hundred million people who want to get out of abject poverty and be able to have the same life opportunities as you guys have had for decades or even half a century. It, and that is just interject. Across, it's not just about wealth. I don't want our, our left. You no. Because if you live in India and you're burning cow chips for heat, you're dying of emphysema. You're dying of, yes. of airborne pollutants. One of your biggest problems is getting clean water. Well, clean water takes power to deliver. So uh, it's not just about amassing more stuff. They have serious environmental problems that have nothing to do with carbon. Carbon is the yes. environmental problem of the U.S. who has been, been able to clean up everything else. And, and we should yes. think of it as, as their health, not just their, their development. Yes. Please go ahead. No, no, and, and John, that's a very good point. And also, of course, it's all kinds of other things that come from poverty. It's the fact that your kids die from easily curable infectious diseases. They don't have enough food. They don't have a good education. All these are the basic things that we don't think about. You mentioned indoor air pollution because you burn, you know, essentially dung. Uh, and, and of course, we don't think of that. You don't go into your kitchen and worry about getting air pollution because we just turn on our stove. Everything is run by electricity, but that's not the case for more than 3 billion people around the world who use wood, cow dung, cardboard, whatever they can lay their hands on. So 
It's not going to happen with India. It's not going to happen with China either, as, as HR pointed out. They are going to build many more power stations. Now they've come out and said, we're going to uh, probably go net zero by 2060. But of course, you can promise anything by 2060. I, I'm, I'm always reminded of the fact that in their sub submission to uh, the Paris Agreement, they also promise that they will become democratic in 2050. So, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, you can promise a lot of stuff in a long time from now, but what really matters is what are you going to do in the next few years and what are you going to do in the next decade? And HR, that goes back to your question. Of, so what is it we should be doing? Mm -hmm. And the simple point is to recognize you're not going to tell people around the world, I'm sorry, could you just not do with all that energy? Remember, energy is what basically made us rich. Energy is what powered the industrial revolution and made it possible for us to all come out of a, an agrarian economy where basically the main power source was our own work, the work of drought animals and firewood. That was the three things, yes. And then you had a little bit of wind for your, uh, for your uh, windmills and for your boats. That was about it. Right. What got us rich was that we suddenly realized, oh wait, you can get a lot of power, mostly from fossil fuels which basically allows you to have not just yourself, but literally hundreds of servants with the same energy as a person. Each one of us have lots of servants. Now, that was great back in, you know, for Louis XIV. He had lots of servants that could do all kinds of other stuff, but it's a bad setup for everyone because, you know, a few people get to be the king, the kings, and most people get to be the servants. What the power that we got from fossil fuels essentially does is, we all get to get lots of servants. We all have our Roomba and some, something that cleans our clothes and something that cleans our plates and everything else. This is what development looked like. What we need to be able to do in order to fix the problem of climate change is to be able to provide all those benefits to people while not emitting CO2. That's only gonna happen if we can innovate the price of green energy down below fossil fuels. Yeah, let's be a little specific here. So Joe Biden runs for president and he tucks climate change under two categories, quote, clean energy revolution and environmental justice and equitable economic opportunity. John Cochran just loves that phrase. Uh, environmental justice, equitable economic opportunity. Um, you have been very harsh about Joe Biden's climate fix. Your words were, quote, fantastically expensive and perfectly useless. Uh, what does he get wrong? And what is the Bjorn Longborg solution that Joe Biden does so, not? Let, let, let me let just emphasize on, on this question. Um, the current enthusiasm seems to be uh, electric, battery-powered electric cars, windmills, solar photovoltaics, and a plan to um, starve the fossil fuel industry, like cancel the Keystone Pipeline before other alternatives are to scale. Uh, I gather there are other technologies that you think uh, are more likely to help us. Yes. So let, let me just say that was uh, the headline of perfectly useless was actually uh, New York Post. Uh, that was a that was a radical uh, sharpening of what I was saying that a lot of the proposals that Biden has made, uh, so for instance, weatherizing homes uh, and providing uh, uh, support for electric cars, as John just mentioned, are very, very ineffective ways to tackle global warming. So we know from large scale studies that you basically pay a lot of money and you cut a little bit of CO2. Now, obviously what you want to do is to pay as little as possible and cut as much CO2 as you can. And those are not the ways. What he has also promised is that he's going to dramatically increase investment in green energy R&D. 
That is the right way forward because fundamentally, and that's also what Bill Gates, for instance, points out, look, we don't have the technologies to fix most of the problem. Uh, a lot of people love to talk about, oh, solar and wind and it makes us all feel all warm and fuzzy inside. The reality is a little bit of solar, a little bit of wind is a great idea because they're fairly cheap. And if you can get them to fill out, especially for instance, solar in California comes in the middle of the day when the sun is out and it helps you drive more air conditioning. That's great. That's almost like free energy. It's not, but it's, you know, it's a pretty good setup. But obviously you can't drive most of your economy on it. And especially if you're gonna to try to bring in lots more, if you're gonna put all the electric cars and everything on it, you can't power an economy with solar and wind because what are you gonna do when the wind is not, uh, uh, sorry, the wind is not blowing and the sun is not shining? Mm -hmm. You're up creek. And this happens regularly and for a long time, most places. So basically what you have to do, and, and in some ways you can look at Germany, which has been lauded in many ways as the leading country for the uh, what they call the Energiewende, the changeover to green energy. They have basically tried to do that. And what they now have is two systems. So you both have to have the green system and you still need all the fossil fuel or most of the fossil fuel. So they've used, they still have about 85% of their fossil fuel capacity because you need that for when days is not, when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing. And that of course is incredibly expensive. That's why you see that across all of Europe, we haven't seen this in the US because the penetration is not large enough, but across all of Europe, the more green energy you have, the higher the cost. So while everybody tells you it's gonna get cheaper, that's only true when the wind is, is blowing or the sun is shining, but across the whole system, it unfortunately makes the cost higher. And one extra thing, I just wanna mention that because uh, uh, as you mentioned, Bill, uh, the president is actually saying he wants this to be equitable. But what actually happens is that when you drive up the energy price, it mostly harms the poor. The rich, they can easily afford this. And often they're the ones who get most of the subsidies. So the rich get almost all of the electric car subsidies, most of the solar uh, subsidies, the poor just end up paying. And this is both true in the US. So this is true for the US poor, but it's especially true as we're now seeing, for instance, with the carbon tariffs that the EU are thinking about, that we're seeing rich countries actually asking the world's poor to pay for their climate policies. Not surprisingly, that's not going to go down well in the longer run. Bjorn, isn't there isn't there like a, a silver lining though? I mean, I, aren't there real solutions out there? So I'm thinking about the the largest reduction in man-made carbon emissions in history, which occurred in the United States with the availability of cheap natural gas. Right? Yep. Isn't the biggest opportunity conversion of coal fire plants, for example, to to uh, to natural gas uh, as as the first step? Nuclear, and isn't it really nuclear. like a, com a combination of of a range of of other uh, of other possibilities as well, like next generation nuclear, for example. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of of what, what what Germany did, which was which made no sense at all, uh, which is to get rid of all their nuclear after the Fukushima disaster, as if a tsunami were to come out of the Rhine at any moment, uh, and then and then go, went to all renewables but couldn't do it, and now is over reliant on coal. Uh, Japan, for maybe more understandable reasons, after that disaster of 10 years ago, 
uh, had got rid of, of nuclear power and is is building and financing in the region more coal-fired plants, which makes yep. no sense if you care about uh, about carbon emissions and global warning warming. So it it just doesn't seem feasible or or, or logical to be anti-nuclear and also anti-global warming at the same time. And then, of course, on the horizon, there, there are other really cheap and, and reliable sources like hydrogen. But hydrogen takes a lot of energy to produce energy. And so it, the combination is maybe nuclear power with hydrogen co-located, for example. So the, the solutions are on the horizon or with us actually already today. But those are not the solutions people are talking about. Why, why is that, Bjorn? So you're, you're absolutely right. So one of the best short-term and medium-term changes is to get everyone to switch from coal to gas. That's what the U.S. fracking revolution did in the U.S. As, as you mentioned, this has caused the U.S. to reduce its emissions more than any other country in the last 10 years. This is a tremendous opportunity. Remember, that was never intended as a climate uh, a policy. This was mostly to generate a lot more energy in the U.S. It just happened to also mean that you switch from coal to gas, and because gas emits about half as much uh, CO2 per energy unit, you reduce your emissions very, very much. We should get China to do that. We should get India to do that. It is harder to, to actually do that than to just say it. So the US is enjoying this uh, revolution. Part of the reason why you can do that is because you also have good property rights. You have a very effective capitalist system. It has turned out to be much, much harder to do both in Europe, and it's probably also going to be harder to do in China. Uh, I, I can't even imagine to begin to try to do this in India, uh, but clearly it's one of the things that we should be thinking about doing. So Hello, that is one. Go ahead. I was just going to say, let, let's be clear. You, you mentioned fracking as policy. Fracking was not U.S. policy. Fracking was over the dead bodies of U.S. policymakers and only the property rights of people who wanted to do it, let them do it in the face. And it's still, it's banned on federal lands. It's banned in a bunch of states as it's banned in, in, in Europe. There's been a lot of pol politics about it. And, and again, you should also be honest about it. Fracking has its problems. So, you know, the biggest uh, study of what are the total costs and what are the total benefits estimate the total cost of fracking is probably about 25 billion in extra air pollution and extra water pollution. The benefits is probably in the order of 150, 200 billion dollars. So the net benefit is huge. But remember, if you're one of the guys who get the disbenefits but not the benefits, not surprisingly, you're against it. So we need to be honest about that. There's a you know there's a distributional issue here as well. But if you care about climate change, absolutely, fracking is one of the ways that you can get much more gas, get gas to be cheaper than coal, and hence get more uh, gas use, less coal use, less CO2 emissions. But, but, uh, on, on the on the why are we not doing this? Um, this is supposedly a science-driven decision, yet fracking, yet um, <clears throat> nuclear power, yet uh, geoengineering, which got Monroe to say that, <laughs> but yet uh, why do, why, the U.S. puts in tariffs against Chinese solar panels, so they'll be built in the U.S. for good union jobs. Um, on all our policies, we seem to be doing absolutely no cost-benefit analysis, at yeah. least none that I can read. I mean, every single policy should have. This will cost X. But let's forget even the cost. This policy at whatever cost will reduce carbon by X number of tons, will reduce the temperature in 2100 by X degrees, will raise GDP in 2100 by X billion dollars. It would seem that if you're the party of science, that this number should be everywhere, but not 
it's just not not discussed, which is, I think, how we get into this. We sort of pick fancy, nice sounding technologies, but by not having the discipline of even, even trying, yes, all the numbers are jiggered, but even having to write down jiggered numbers is is a pretty uh, interesting exercise. So, and, and, and John, of why course, why are we the not reason, doing the most and, and, basic benefit analysis of any of these policies? Yes, and, and of course, the guy who, the only climate economist who got the Nobel Prize uh, in climate economics, William Nordhaus, got the Nobel Prize for doing exactly that. What are the costs? What are the benefits of climate policies? And what he found was we should do some, but not very much. This, of course, is why most of the conversation is exactly framed in this is the end of the world. This is an existential threat. Because if it is the end of the world, obviously, you know, as uh, AOC said, you don't sit around and say, how much is it going to cost us? You're just going to throw everything at it if it really is the end of the world. But it's not. It is a problem. And therefore, you need to ask, how much is this going to cost? And I think you will find that when you do these numbers, most of the things that we talk about will have an unmeasurable impact by the end of the century. So, you know, the, U uh, the European Union decided to up its uh, 2030 promise uh, from 40% reduction to 55%. It's probably going to cost us in the neighborhood of a couple of trillion dollars, yet the benefit is unmeasurable by the end of the century. This, of course, is why you don't see those numbers. Uh, if I could just uh, briefly answer uh, HR's question on, on nuclear power, I think you're absolutely right. Look, if you think this is the end of the world, we have a technology to avoid that. That's nuclear power. Nuclear power is incredibly safe and it doesn't emit or almost emits no CO2. So why aren't you just going with this? I think the reason why we should be a little wary of, of today's nuclear power is simply because we know currently building new power plants, nuclear power plants in the West have a tendency to cost an enormous amount of money. So they end up being very, very expensive. They end up generating power that's much more expensive than fossil fuels. Also often more expensive than any green energy you can think of. That's not a recipe for you know, solving this problem. That's a recipe for throwing away a lot of money. So that's why, and as you also mentioned, we need to look at the fourth generation, the next generation of nuclear power plants because they have the promise to become much cheaper, much safer, work much better. Uh, my, my only concern is that was also what they told us and promised us for the other three generations and didn't quite happen. There's a number of reasons for that. Uh, but, you know, fundamentally, it's one of the many things that we should be researching. So remember, there's a lot of solutions, as you also mentioned. Uh, very clearly, we could capture carbon and store it. Uh, we could have much more storage. Uh, we could talk about geoengineering. We could talk about uh, be better nuclear, so fourth generation nuclear. We could also talk about fusion, which you know happens to be the long-term thing that we really believe we would be able to power civilization into the next millennium or that kind of thing. And of course, there's also a lot of other opportunities. Some of them are solar and wind together with uh, batteries. And some of them are, you know, slightly off the wall kind of ideas. So uh, Craig Venter, the guy who cracked the human genome, he talks about this idea of growing algae on the sea surface. So algae would basically soak up sunlight and CO2 and produce oil. And then we could run that oil and because it just soaked up the CO2, we would net emit nothing. So we could actually keep our entire infrastructure, drive around and be net zero. 
How cool would that be? It doesn't work right now. And there's a lot of reasons why it might never work, but those kinds of solutions are the ones that we certainly want to investigate. The idea here is simply to say, we have lots of great points. We have lots of great ideas out there. Let's make sure we fund them because research scientists, incredibly cheap. And if we could find a solution that would be so cheap that it would be cheaper than fossil fuels. Not only rich, well-meaning Americans would, you know, yeah. uh, uh, clamber to get onto that solution. The Chinese and the Indians and everybody else would. We would both make it better for the world, and we'd make it plausible that we'd solve the problem. Here's here's where I tend to be grumpy, and HR is always optimist. Um, you know, in our federal funding system right now, about three quarters of the things you just mentioned, I think, would be immediately turned down as as politically incorrect. And, and I, I do want to turn back a little bit to the politics of, of um, you know, how, how do we get that even even basic things now you can't, you're not allowed to talk about. Uh, it used to be global warming, then it became climate change, then it became climate justice, and then it became climate crisis. Uh, I love, Jane Fonda was out a while ago saying, you know, a year ago, they said we had 12 years, well, now we have 11 years until civilization ends, you know, and if if they had said if that, you know, she was right. Yet at the, out of the same mouth, nobody's taking this at, at all seriously. Um, the, the, uh, it, is, it is a fact that climate has now become paired with uh, a quite extreme uh, progressive agenda. The IPCC, you know, says things like as scientific fact, we can only cure the climate if we also cure a whole long list of social justice problems at the same time. I was said, uh, my Senate uh, testimony experience was interesting because one congressman <clears throat> uh, was particularly concerned about uh, climate justice and minority communities. I was not asked the question because I was not the friendly witness, but <clears throat> you know, I wanted to scream. If you're in a, a poor inner city minority community, you got a ton of problems. You got rotten schools, you got a ton of environmental problems, you got smoke, you got lead in the ground, uh, you got lead in the pipes, you got kids who are eating horrible stuff. You have a crime that's healthcare, in, and you're healthcare. worried about this place getting a little warmer in a hundred years. Um, now, in part, as in the Green New Deal, we, you're not allowed to change the climate unless you also put in universal basic income and guaranteed healthcare for all. And in, in the Biden administration, but of course, it has to be done by unionized jobs in the U.S. on a union pay scale. None of this is. It, it makes a mockery of the idea that this is an existential crisis because we wouldn't have the time for all that stuff if it were. But it also seems to make it impossible for our, uh, you know, as long as it's going to get wrapped up, not just in partisan politics, but wrapped up as, as a cause of a quite radical progressive left around the world, that would seem to be hopeless for getting their sort of genuine scientific progress that we all think needs to be done to to help this problem. Well, John, you also described the infrastructure debate here because infrastructure is one part physical, but also there's human infrastructure as well. So there's the social agenda that goes along with it. Well, the, the quote infrastructure bill is, is hilarious because the first $400 billion of it is unionized home health care for old people. <clears throat> and you want to build infrastructure in the U.S. The problem is not money. The problem with building infrastructure in the U.S. is you can't get the permits to do it. Uh, even the tiny amount that's, I mean, California desperately needs infrastructure. We need dams, we need roads, we need electric power, we need somewhere to clean out the forest, and none of that is in the, infra sorry, you got me going on infrastructure. Right. Um, but to Bjorn, but both Bjorn has always been, I think, in the HR uh, camp of being a little too optimistic here. And, and unless we face the political problem facing us, that 
climate, a problem we all think needs to be addressed, has gotten hijacked and is now inexorably entwined with, with a, even by the IPCC, uh, with a, a political agenda. And Bjorn, was this inevitable or is this something that was maybe sped up by the pandemic, the pandemic leading to you know, spending in, in America and everything done in the guise of social justice? I think there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a difference here in the US and, and uh, the rest of the West. Uh, certainly my experience here is that, that uh, in the US, everything has a slightly more of a tendency to become very polarized. So it was perhaps inevitable that that sort of all other things along with global warming would be accumulating over in 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 one camp. Uh, I, I think it, uh, certainly my experience with the UN climate panel, the IPC, uh, and, and 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 much of the policy around climate change is mostly climate fo focused. Uh, certainly, when you talk about it here in in, in Europe, yeah, there's also some uh, conversation about that it has to be equitable and stuff. But most people recognize that most of the solutions you're going to make with climate policy will actually end up having regressive effects. You know, if you raise the cost of uh, electricity, it's mostly gonna hit poor people. And, right. and then you can try to sort of adjust for it, but it is inevitable in some way that this is gonna be very much more costly for poor people. And, and I think that's one of the real challenges for much of the climate agenda, both in the rich world, but especially in the poor world, Remember, we need to get China and India and the rest of Southeast Asia and the rest of Africa and Latin America on board with these policies if we're actually going to have a success. And we're not going to get them on board unless this is much, much cheaper. Uh, so in, in some sense, I think, uh, sure, uh, look, uh, a, a lot of policy is about you know, making the words and, and just you know, assembling it to, to make it feel like it, it, it seems right at the moment. Uh, my sense is in some ways, uh, I, and I haven't looked closely at this, so I, I take your word for it, John, but my sense is uh, Biden is basically promising a big infrastructure plan and he's gonna build, you know, that was my understanding, roads and uh, 5G networks and uh, get better schools and all kinds of other stuff. And then he's wrapping it up uh, under the, the framework of climate. And maybe that's just smart packaging. Certainly it seems to me that there's not all that much climate involved in this. And, and in some ways, given that we know that there's a lot of bad climate policies, maybe it's not such a bad thing to be spending it on other and smarter stuff. It is inevitable in a world where you can almost only um, talk about COVID or climate that everything gets labeled as this is COVID policy and this is climate policy. But you know, the, the real test of any policy has to be, is it a smart idea? And, and, and I think we need to get back to that conversation. Actually, but in the US- let's remember, we're not actually fixing climate very well. Right. In the US now, it's, it's social justice and racial justice, which displaced climate for a while. And I think the, the question on the left is whether climate can come back as, as the cause celebre of the day, which actually, I would hope it would not because then we can have a, a bipartisan technocratic actually solve the damn problem approach as opposed to if climate gets gets number one on the agenda of all the alphabet soup of agencies and nonprofits and you know, other things that then, then we'll never be able to fix. HR, one thing we can say about climate change is we'll always have Paris. Uh, we are now back in the Paris Agreement. Um, Bjorn is not a fan of that agreement, I believe, but HR, what do you think happens when all these swells, it'll be, 
the, the wonderful Vajran Carey can live up to his Francophile finest when he goes to Paris and meets with all the swells. What happens, though, HR, when these people get together in a room? What comes out of it? And Bjorn, what do you see happening with Paris 2.0, if you will? Well, I mean, th- I think this is a way to find some common ground, right? By criticizing Paris and criticizing it in the way, just to make the point that, hey, it's not going to make a damn bit of difference, right? It's inadequate. In fact, all it does is make everybody feel good about themselves. And if you really do want to get after the, the problem of, of climate change, you need real solutions, not just feel good exercises, right? And this gets to the points that we've been making in connection with, with, uh, with connecting energy security to climate uh, issues, as well as as well as health and, and water security and food security. We have to look at the at the at the entire system and how there are these interdependencies across each of these systems, so we can do you know, to use the economic term, the cost-benefit analyses that are that are important uh, to, to real solutions, right? So I think that the way uh, the way to, to to begin to win this argument, mm-hmm. you know, is is to is to distinguish ourselves from climate deniers, right? But and say, okay, hey, it is a problem. We agree it's a problem, but everything that you are proposing and and the agreements to which you're you're you're, you're signing up or you're signing up to, like the Paris Agreement, aren't going to do a damn bit of good. Uh, and either are some of these irrational policies we see at the national level. Uh, Germany, not to pick on Germany again, you know, but but after canceling nuclear power, uh, Germany created a dependence issue on Russia for natural gas, right, which undermined their own security and gave Vladimir Putin course of power over Germany's economy. So I would add as a criterion, energy security from a national security perspective as well. For example, if we went to 100% renewables, we would we would trade the dependency on oil from the Middle East in the 1970s for a dependency on rare earths and battery manufacturing and supply chains, uh, a dependency on China, right? So so there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, you know, to to develop solutions that will actually get at the problem of climate change while providing energy security, addressing the other interconnected problems, and not creating a national security problem as well. But but Bjorn, I'd like to to hear your thoughts on signing back up for Paris. I argued to stay in when I was national security advisor because I just didn't see, I didn't think it really made a difference one way or the other. Uh, but but I understood why the president had to do it. But on reflection, I read about this in, in, in the book. You know, is it is it I thought it was a it was beneficial to get out of it because it did give us a false sense of security. Yeah, no, so look, uh, uh, Bill also, uh, I'm, I'm not against Paris. I'm, I'm basically making the same point that HR is. It just doesn't matter very much. And, and what uh, we've seen for the last at least 20 years of climate policy, it is that we make all these grand promises. Much of it doesn't actually happen. And even if we manage to do everything we promised, we'll end up having made very little difference to the climate. That's a bad outcome in all, all around. And of course, at the same time, we actually end up, if we do this in the way we promised, end up spending trillions of dollars every year. So the cost estimate of Paris, if everybody did what they promised, would be somewhere between one and two trillion dollars a year. That's you know, it's not the end of the world, but it's certainly a significant amount of money. It's you know, one to two percent of global GDP. It's certainly money that most people would think we could spend elsewhere and do a lot of good with. So, so again, we need to recognize it's both being broadcast as, oh, this is a solution. No, it's nothing of the sorts. And it's also being uh, being argued as this is the way forward. No, at very best, it's a tiny, tiny part 
of the solution. But the real answer is innovation. And this we've forgotten. One of the things most people don't recognize is that in Paris, there was actually two agreements made. One was the Paris Agreement proper, the one that everybody talks about, where all nations promised something or another. Uh, the other one was one that was led by Bill Gates and Obama and many, many other, both leaders of state and, and billionaires, which was the uh, mission innovation, where everyone promised to double their investment in research and development by 2020. So just in five short years. And of course, we did nothing of the sort because everybody was focused on the first part, the one where we feel good and where we put up solar panels and say, see how much we've done. But the other one was the one that would actually long-term fix the problem. Again, if, if I can just make make sort of a, a brief, brief metaphor, Appreciate if you look at Los Angeles back in the 1950s, it was terribly, terribly polluted, mostly because of cars emissions from lots and lots of cars. The sort of standard environmentalist solution would be to say, well, let's try to convince more people to walk or run or bike or just not leave their house. And of course that would have been utterly um, impossible. The solution that did work was the innovation of the catalytic converter in, in 1974. You put it on, it costs a bit of money, you put it on your car and basically you can drive much, much further and emit much less pollution. That's the main reason, it's not the only pollution, but the main reason why Los Angeles is much, much less polluted today. But innovation is the way that you can actually have people do what they like and reduce emissions. The standard sort of Paris Agreement way is to tell everyone, I'm sorry, could you just not do all the stuff that you're doing? Could you travel less? Could you eat less meat? Could you have less fun? Uh, and, and sure, you can do that in the short term, uh, but you know, we've, we've all sort of experienced what it feels like to be locked down for, for, for a year. And remember, that cut as much CO2 as the UN is, estimate we have to cut more every two years. So basically, if you say we had two lockdowns in 2020, it depends on which nation you're looking at. But say we had two lockdowns in 2020, then you need three lockdowns in 2021, four lockdowns in 2022, and so on. And I can tell you pretty soon, we're gonna have John's uprising and people saying enough, right? That's just not gonna happen. Of course, we can do it smarter than a lockdown, but still it gives you a sense of the proportion that what we're talking about, just not gonna happen. It is like asking people in Los Angeles to run instead of using their car. But, but it's, not, it's not that easy. So <clears throat> for the record, we have just all of us uh, gone down as radicals. The Paris Accord's main problem is it's not nearly enough. It will not solve the problem. I just want our leftist critics to understand where we are on them. The problem with innovation <clears throat> is, uh, first of all, just for the record, because uh, we know what we're talking about, innovation is different. Uh, innovation, new ideas, new techniques is not the same thing as demonstration plants, as, as subsidizing the implementation of things at scale which is what our government loves to do because it's extra billions and billions of dollars. But like the solar plant that just blew up in Nevada, uh, you know, that has always been, been a waste. Uh, it also is, is always done, you know, on union jobs, uh, tariffs against Chinese solar panels. It's always done in the most expensive way. Innovation is about, you know, the science of finding new things. The difficulty is it has to be all innovation. Imagine 
putting in for a grant from the National Science Foundation right now on, hey, I think I know how to make a, uh, a carbon capture thing that will allow us to burn oil and fossil fuels into the next century and not, not cause trouble. Mm, good luck getting that grant. Imagine, oh, I have a new genetically way of genetically modifying food so that we can uh, you know, plant more food on less ground and use less chemical fertilizers and tractors to do it. Ah, good luck getting that one through. Uh, suppose you have um, your, your algae or uh, I've figured out uh, a way to, um, to disperse, um, to disperse uh, uh, um, salt uh, in, in the ocean that will create more clouds and we'll lower global global temperatures so we can keep doing what we want to do. You know, things that solve the problem in cheap ways. Uh, the, the problem with right now politically financed uh, genuine research, it, it's two. One, they want development projects at scale. And two, uh, I'm quite suspicious about the kind of out-of-the-box innovation you want uh, actually being funded by the, you know, what do we got? We got private philanthropy, which all wants to look good at Davos by saying how much they don't like fossil fuels and how much they like windmills. And we got the government who has the same attitude. And, you know, funding the stuff that actually you want is, is harder than you say on just, oh, we need more R&D. Yes. Look, look, John, you're absolutely right. And it needs also a change of approach. And I think that goes to HR's point. Uh, look, if you're really worried about global warming, it sounds kind of silly that you're going to say, but I'm not actually going to use nuclear power. I'm not actually going to consider carbon ca capture and storage. I'm not going to consider geoengineering. If you're really worried, of course, you're going to consider all of those things and many, many more. So fundamentally, we need both more research, but we also need unfeathered research, that is, that you can actually research both the things you really, really like, like more efficient solar with more better and cheaper batteries. That's probably a very, very good thing to invest in, but it's not the only thing we should be yeah. investing in. And maybe hydrogen fuel cycle. cells instead of instead of batteries. What you're saying then is, is that the left is also deeply not serious about climate change. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's this wonderful study that shows that half the world's population now believes global warming will possibly will likely lead to the extinction of the human race, which is you know sort of sort of outrageous when you look at what the UN climate panel actually says. But then when you go ask people how much are you willing to spend to avoid this, you know, uh, one survey in the U.S. with Washington Post showed that more than half the the American population wasn't willing to pay $24 a year. So you know, there's something wrong in the sense of saying, it's the end of the world, but no, I'm only willing to pay $23 for it. Uh, so you know, clearly we've sort of become accustomed to say it's the end of the world, but most people don't actually act that way when you get down to it. And I think that's really why we're stuck in a situation. And I think Bill Gates pointed this out very, fairly well. We're stuck in a situation where we have a problem that everybody talks up, but one which many voters are only willing to spend a fairly small amount of money on. And that's why if we're actually gonna fix this problem, we need to spend that money really, really well. So let me ask you genuine scientific questions where I genuinely don't know the answer and hope you do. Uh, we know that the economic uh, estimates are small and even the couple percent you mentioned when you look hard at them are, are, are way overstated because adaptation happens slowly over hundred years. You know, Rotterdam has been underwater for 400 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, so Miami will be where Rotterdam is. It, you know, when you, when you got hundreds of years, it's hard to do that. But there is a claim that look, yes, the uh, GDP of a modern economy is very resistant to, to weather, uh, but we are, you know, we're playing uh, 
we're, we're playing dice with a delicate environmental system, you know, melt all of Greenland. Now, one view says, you know, 10,000 years ago, uh, the sea level was 100 feet lower. We've already had the huge sea level rise and uh, melting, melting, you know, melting Greenland means we, can, we get more land. But there's another view that says we're really playing danger with something we don't know. So there is a, if not in, in GDP, there is a claim that there's a possibility of some environmental catastrophe that we're not really thinking of, which leads me to my other uh, question. And I'm gonna ask two, cause I know we're, we're getting close on time. One worry I have with climate is that it has absorbed all the oxygen uh, in the room. I worry a lot about lots of problems facing the end of civilization like nuclear war, uh, decay of our Western political systems. But I also worry about um, environmental questions. Um, the uh, decline of, of species is, is going faster and faster and has nothing to do with global warming. We're shooting the rhinos. They're, they're not dying because it's getting hotter. Um, there's all sorts of actual risks. Pandemics we just saw, uh, we, we, we subsist on some monocultures that, uh, you know, bacteria could come wipe out the wheat crop. Um, actually, uh, uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria could come at the US. We seem to be not paying attention to the civilization ending threats that face us. We seem to be not paying attention to the actual environmental threats that are very real that face us. Um, all and But perhaps there is some environmental non-economic uh, reason to worry that uh, you can't you can't buy insurance against all the one in a hundred risks at at uh, because otherwise you're bankrupt but certainly um, there is this claim that there's a potential tail risk to climate that we're not thinking of although we're not thinking of all the other tail risks yes. too so so, so I, th I think I think you're 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 addressing a, a number of very very important uh, questions one is is there really this existential threat? So Norhaus, the guy who got the Nobel Prize in economics, actually looked specifically at the problem of Greenland and looked at the worst case scenarios that we can have. And yes, you can envision, you can't really see Greenland melting in say 50 years or something, which would be a real catastrophe. You can see it melt over about a thousand years. What happens is that the optimal carbon tax, instead of being 31 point, I think 15 cents, $31 and 15 cents, it's $31 and 15 and a half cent or something like that. So no, any realistic sort of catastrophe is just not from this particular area is just not justified to actually change your behavior much. You should change it towards a higher carbon tax. And that's true for a lot of different things, but not very much is what he finds. But in more general terms, you, you, I think you're pointing out two things. That, well, you're pointing out one of the two things I want to mention. One is there are lots of other existential threats. And in some way, if we only care about this one big thing, we're forgetting all the others. And you know, uh, Nordhaus had a big conversation uh, with a, a, a Harvard economist who was very, very worried about climate change, and pointing out, but what about all the other things? You know, so clearly North Korea, and I'm sure HR could talk much more about that. But right. there's also all kinds of other things that could happen. You mentioned, you know, uh, 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 what happens if we have a, a new pandemic that's much, much worse? What happens if we have uh, a loss of uh, antibiotics? Uh, you know, there's a whole range of other things we could be worried about and that we should also be paying attention to. I would say that's part of what it means to actually be a smart species that we don't just over-focus on one and forget all the other existential risks. 
But then, and, and this is one of the things that I think are also really bad about the climate conversation, we forget about the very, very simple but enormously important things that are out there right now. We mentioned it before, the fact that people die from all kinds of you know, easily curable infectious diseases like tuberculosis, malaria, HIV, AIDS, all these other things, that there's not enough food, that there's not good education, that there are not all these other things that actually matter a lot. So I think in some ways, we both forget all the other extremes, but we also forget all the very simple things that we know how to fix really, really simply and effectively. So. So I think, yes, we should care about climate change, but if we over-worry about climate change, it means we under-worry both about the other existential risks and also about all the other risks and all the other things that where we could have helped make a better planet. Uh, climate people love to sort of say, what will happen when you look at in 2100 and look back at what you did? You know, wh what are you gonna say you did during the great you know, sort of climate battles in the 2020s? Well, I would like to hope that we're, they're saying about us that we not only cared about fixing climate change smartly, we also cared about the other existential threats and we certainly also cared about all the other things that we could actually fix cheaply and effectively, like for instance, tuberculosis and malaria. So let's make sure we don't over-worry about one thing and forget everything else. Well, that, okay, John, is... John, I'm getting a high sign, we gotta go here. I'd like to ask one quick question to all three of you and then we will call it a day. What happened to Greta Thunberg? If we'd done this show a year ago, 18 months ago, Greta was all the rage. She was the Nobel laureate in waiting. She was sailing across the sea to go to climate change conferences. She was our high priestess. How dare you? Here's my question to the three of you. Come the time we return to normal. Everyone has a vaccine. We're traveling. We're not obsessed over virus 24-7. And we start talking more about climate change. Are we going to see Greta or another priest or priestess emerge? Or do you think climate change has now been wrapped in with, with uh, equity and you know, cultural wars and social justice? HR, why don't you go first? Hey, well, you know, there's a place for anger. You know, if you're passionate about something, that, that's okay. So I, I don't begrudge that to credit Thunberg, but I do hope that we educate ourselves about this problem more and come up with real solutions. And I think that's the winning argument, Bill. I mean, I, and, and, and this is why Bjorn's work is so important. I think we can acknowledge, hey, it's bad. We, it, we, we need to do something about it now, it being climate change. But we, have, we, we, have, we can no longer afford to pursue non-solutions to, to the problem. And, and, and I think the good news is solutions are available that are economically viable, uh, that do take into account the kind of cost-benefit analysis we've been discussing you know, for, the, for the past hour. You know? So, so I, I just wish we could get beyond you know, the, the performative uh, you know, so, solutions and, and the rhetoric and, and really, you know, really work on these interconnected problems. And, uh, and we, then we can make, we can make progress. What do you think, John? I, I think Greta Thunberg is a, a wonderful uh, symptom. Uh, if you are told that the Western civilization is going to come to an end in exactly 12.2 years, because climate will hit a tipping point and the world will fry, and you take that seriously, you do exactly what Greta said. By God, we gotta go do something about this. Everybody else in her class, oh yeah, yeah, here goes the bullshit. Can we just get through the exam and get on with life? But Greta actually took them seriously. <laughs> so she's a great little canary in the coal mine for that sort of thing. Yes, uh, the passions of the progressive woke religion will move on. And I hope that is the case so that we can get some sensible answer to this problem in a reasonable context. I'm, I'm interested at the focus question. You know, you say 
global GDP will decline by, I don't know, 2% 2100. What agrees global GDP by 2% 2100? I got a whole bunch of things that'll do it. Residential zoning alone is 10% of GDP. Uh, Europe is 40% of GDP less than the US because their combined tax systems and, and, and various disincentives. Immigration controls are 25% of GDP. So there's this narrow focus uh, problem, which comes from things that are over-politicized and over-religious. And uh, so I, I hope that this can uh, get out of that, uh, get, get out of that, 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 that the woke religion will move on to other issues and we can actually fix this one. Bjorn, you get the last word. So Bill, I, I think unfortunately, we're gonna come back to uh, this whole worry about climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you look what happened in, uh, during the financial crisis back in 2008, uh, you know, for a while we forgot about climate change, but then when things start going well again, we start worrying about climate change again. I think we will see that come back. And, and as, as John pointed out, you know, uh, Greta is a perfect example of what happens if you tell uh, 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 kids, the world is going to end. They're going to freak out. And I totally understand that. What I'm hoping is that we can remember that goes back to the conversation we just had, that we get other Greta Thunbergs for all the other things that we should be worried about. I would love to see equally passionate and very, very well-spoken and influential people saying we need to do something about the terrible fact that 1.6 million people every year die from tuberculosis. We need to do something about malnutrition. We need to do something about lack of education. We need to do something about all the other things that are afflicting us. That would also help to put into perspective, yes, global warming is one point, but it's only one problem of many. And we are not going to have done well unless we actually focus on all of these things. So in some sense, she's a great experiment of saying, Look, you've got to worry about global warming, but you also have to have space to worry about all the other things so we can actually fix most of the problems in the most smart way. Thank you, Bjorn. Well said. And speaking of return to normal, I hope we get to see you back on the Stanford campus. I don't know when, but sometime soon, we hope. Let's do that. Okay, gentlemen, thank you for a great conversation today. That's a wrap for this episode of Goodfellows. Don't despair. We'll be back next week with a new episode, and we are doing something different. We want you, our faithful YouTube community, to tell us what we should be talking about. We want you to send in questions. If you have ideas, topics, things you want to pose to Neil Ferguson or HR McMaster or John Cochran, by all means, tell us what's on your mind because we want to hear what, you, what you're thinking about. To do this, very simple. Go to the following web address to send in your question. The address is Hoover dot org forward slash ask goodfellows. Repeat that. Hoover.org forward slash ask goodfellows. Submit your question. We'll do our best to get it on next week on a special question time episode of Goodfellows. If you want to keep up um, what uh, Bjorn Lumborg is thinking and writing, he has a website you can go to, and that address is www.lomborg.com. Lomborg spelled as you might expect, L-O-M-B-O-R-G. Brave man that he is. He's also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Bjorn Lomborg. That is spelled B-J-O-R-N-L-O-M-B-O-R-G at Bjorn Lomborg. Bjorn, John, and HR also feature prominently in the Hoover Daily Report, which you can subscribe to by going to Hoover's website, www.hoover.org. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, uh, John Cochran, HR McMaster, our special guest today, Bjorn Lomborg, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Thank you.